So let's turn now to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if only it were true that it could be said of us that we were very attentive to hear him. Lord God in heaven, we pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit you might truly make us very attentive to hear and that you might make indeed me in the words of my lips, the words that I declare from Scripture and the truth of Scripture, Lord, that this would in fact be the word of God as you've given it to us, nothing of my own invention, and Lord, that I would be very desirous to declare this word as the people very attentive to hear it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to this final section of Luke chapter 19 and verses 41 to 48. And here is where we catch a glimpse of the real Jesus. Not that he has been concealed from us at any time. That is, of course, the whole point of the Gospels that they might declare to us the Lord Jesus Christ. This entire Gospel was written to show him to us. And this whole scripture was given that we might know the living and true God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is different here, if there's anything different here, is that it was that we have a revelation of two parts, two aspects of the Lord that the world finds so hard to put together. Because on the one hand, we find Him weeping for Jerusalem. And on the other hand, we find Him forcibly cleansing the temple, overturning the tables, and expelling people with force. Much like the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 5 of the lion and the lamb. The lion has prevailed. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He's won. And we turn around and we look and we see a lamb as if he were slain. And just because we have trouble putting these two things together, it does not mean that they're not true. 
Actually, it means that men are blind. And in their sin and in their blindness, they hate the real God and they make a false one. Ever have they made false gods according to their own sinful proclivities, according to their own sinful tastes. And as they make a false God and false gods, so they make a false Christ. Please do not believe, do not think that just because you, uh, you add the name Christ that it makes it a real God. There are many false Christs that have gone into this world, many anti-Christs. But before us today, there is a glimpse of the real thing. Not the Jesus of the liberals and his simpering, effeminate looks, unable then to harm a fly and unwilling. But neither then the God of jihad of Allah who has no sympathy, no love, and no grace for a sinful people. No, this is the real Jesus who has both of these things together in the same God-man. And it is this real Jesus, this only Jesus, who can save us. Because it is precisely the coming together of these two things that seem so impossible and so unlikely before sinful men. It is precisely in this coming together of judgment and of sympathetic mercy that we are saved. This is the essence of the good news, that this is our God and this is our Christ, the real Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is our title this morning, The Real Jesus Christ, and we have three points. One, this real Jesus Christ, he cries, he casts out with sovereignty. Those are our three points. Cries, casts out with sovereignty. First of all, We see that the real Jesus Christ cries. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. This is not the only time we hear of Jesus weeping. We know that Jesus, the the shortest verse in the whole Bible is from John chapter 11 and verse 35 where it says, at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, Jesus wept. And Matthew Henry reminds us that on more than one occasion we hear of him weeping, but never laughing, because he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And he can be to us a sympathetic high priest. You know, that's the thing. I hope you understand that if the Lord Jesus Christ were not capable of these tears, if he was not capable of caring, if he did not care, there would be no hope for mankind at all. Because we are truly in a pitiful condition. The Lord Jesus looked out at us and found us to be in a pitiable, pitiable condition. And he was moved with compassion. He looked out into, indeed, a, a world. He looked out into that sea of people. Remember, he, he had compassion on the masses because they were as sheep having no shepherd. And he intended in his heart and his mind to change that. He, he intended to come and be the shepherd for those who had no shepherd. And it is only through those things that there is hope. So he was capable of weeping. He had done it before. The question is, why did he weep on this particular occasion? We read that as he drew near, he saw the city. 
It was this proximity, it was this sight of the great city of Jerusalem that was the occasion for his tears. But why? Why? What, what about it? It says in verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Because you see, he had not come to some foreign city, he had come to his own city. Here he was, the king of Israel, riding upon the donkey to enter into his own capital city, Jerusalem. And even though there was that minimum required adoration to the Son of God that we spoke of last time, if there wasn't that, then the stone would have cried. The stones would have cried out. But even though there was that minimum acknowledgement and under the power of the Holy Spirit, there was not any real reception of him as their Lord. Because these people were still saying and would soon enough say in their declarations of crucify him that we will not have this man to reign over us. And the Lord knows this. The Lord looks out at this, this people. He's not like Jonah. When Jonah looks out and sees the great city, what does he see? He sees a place that is ripe for destruction and he wants it to happen. And if he's sad, you know why he's sad? He's only sad because it, destruction hasn't happened already. And he grieves because of it. But our Lord is not like Jonah. He's a prophet. And he has come to a great city. But when he looks out at this great city, he has compassion upon it and he weeps. Because he'd come on the day of visitation. He had come on the day of grace the day of salvation, and they were not willing that he should reign over them. And he wept. Now, we have to understand that there would be consequences. He goes on to say in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He is referring to the siege of Jerusalem and the subsequent destruction of the temple in AD 70, not so many years from that point, in which truly no stone would, would, be, would remain upon another. As the Roman soldiers in their greed to dig for the, the gold that had melted from that temple as it burned They ensure that no stone was left upon another. All of this because you did not know the day of your visitation, the day in which your king comes to you in peace, riding upon a donkey, not upon the war horse. That will come the day he came upon a donkey in peace. And they did not know it. They did not receive it. Now, in all this, is he questioning the justice of his fate? Is he saying, you're going to be destroyed, and that's a terrible thing. It should never happen. You don't deserve it. No. Is he bemoaning the cruel decision of of whoever judge it is that is deciding such a fate? If I were that judge, I would never allow that to happen. No, not at all. Actually, we know from John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. He is the judge. 
He is the one who is going to make that decision. He is going to bring that upon this people. And though it was going to happen at the hands of the Romans, it would be done at his direction, his sovereign determination of things. And yet he is weeping for it. Can you believe it? He is looking into the future of a judgment that will surely come, not because of the actions of what was going to happen in A.D. 68 or 69, but of the actions that were happening on that very day as they did not receive their king in peace. And he is weeping at his own judgment of this people and destruction. This is our God. This is our Lord. This is the real Jesus. He does cry. Secondly, he casts out. In verse 45, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. And you have to understand, again, putting yourself in the position of proud man, how does this make sense? Driving people out of the temple of God? Is this not the meeting place of God with his people? Is this not a place that is created in order that people might have access to God? Does Jesus really do that? Does he really cast people out? Yes. And more than once, by the way. Way back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, way back in John chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews, same time of the year, a different year. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, I was going to call this Jesus weeps and whips, but we don't have this particular word in, in our passage here, so we change it slightly. But he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And notice that this could not be the same occasion, you understand. And because the leaders did not, obviously did not agree with the Lord, it's not like the temple remained cleansed for that year or two years in between. It did not remain cleansed for that time at all. Unfortunately, it soon went back to the way it was. And what do you think? Do you think when he encounters the same conditions, he's not going to do the same thing? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as those wicked rulers against the word and action of the Lord allowed those money changers and allowed those who sold oxen and sheep and all the rest of it back into the temple, so the Lord encounters the very same conditions and he does the same thing. He cleanses the temple. But as we saw in the greater detail, John 2, that he made a whip of cords to drive them all out, the people and the animals, we ask the question, does the real Jesus do that? Because you don't see that. And some of you have, have heard me say this before, but you just don't see that in the liberal churches and their pictures of Jesus. They can't keep themselves from pictures of Jesus because there's something in sinful man that just wants to have an image of his God. and He's got to have a picture of Jesus and he never has a, a whip in his hand. He has his simpering good looks, doesn't he? 
and he's wearing his pastel colors and he's got his soft skin. That's not the real Jesus. That man that you see in the picture would not be capable of overturning tables and of of getting oxen. I don't know if you tried to move oxen from one place to another place, but it's not for the weak. And certainly not these men, these number of men that were there. How is he going to get them out? Well, he's going to get a whip in his hand and he's going to drive them out. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who is an image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. There is no other. This is the real God. Why does he do it? Because zeal for his father's house has eaten him up. It is, he's no respecter of persons. He's not coming into that temple trying to find ways to avoid offending the people that he encounters there. He's not looking for ways to be politically correct. He has zeal for his father's house. And is that zeal for the purity and the holiness of his father's house that will lead him to do what he does. Zeal for his father's house has eaten him up. And that is precisely what will bring him to cast out of the presence of his father, out of the presence of the holy angels, out of the presence of the saints, all those who are unclean, all those who make a lie and follow it. Yes, he will cast people out of the temple. He did it back in John 2. He does so here in Luke 19, and in the future he most certainly will cast out from the favorable and beneficent presence of of God and himself, sinners who do not believe. This Christ, this Jesus, he casts people out. And back to our text, he says in verse 46, saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Notice the intended use of this place, this place of the temple, this place of God. It is summarized as a house of prayer, not of sacrifice, and maybe if it was primarily and entirely and ultimately a place of sacrifice, you could rationalize maybe that you should have those who are selling oxen there. But no, it's a house of prayer. It's a place where people have free access to God. Nothing in their hands they bring, but they come to God as paupers and they speak to God and they pour out their heart seeking to receive as Hannah, that which she was asking for. How different then from being a den of thieves. These who have come to that that temple, not so they could bring people into the free access of God, but that they could make money doing it. That they would sell these things at a profit. In fact, we're told it was highway robbery at these times, like the Passover. It's highway robbery because they had to come. They had to make a sacrifice. They'd come all this way. And they needed an animal and they'd have to pay whatever price these people, whatever extortionate price they were were paying for access to God. Do you see the difference between these things? Of the extortion of access to God compared to the freeness and, and, and charity that is to be found, the generosity of a house of prayer. So different. The den of thieves, if you want to serve God, you're going to have to pay and we're going to profit. They're not doing this as a public service out of the goodness of their hearts. We know that the basis of all that it is pointing to a gospel works. It is pointing to precisely the idea of paying to play, paying to have your place in the temple of God. But that's unclean. 
Jesus hates it and he casts it out. He says, no, this place is a place place of, of prayer where people come, sinners, yes, come. And they offer their prayers before God and they're saved. And Jesus responds to all this, to this falsehood and to this, this thievery is to expel them from the temple lest they defile it another moment. Again, all of this foreshadowing his role as judge, just as we saw earlier in this very chapter. What about those enemies? What about those people who say that will not have this man to rule over me? What is he going to do when he returns as judge? He's going to say, but bring here these enemies of mine, those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Does Jesus do that? Yes, he does. The real Jesus does. Not the Jesus of our our wicked imaginations. That in our sin we would not be held accountable to anyone. But the real Jesus, the living and true God, he does these things. But even here, even here in this foreshadowing, this act of foreshadowing of his role of judge, we have to see that there are aspects of his mercy. Just as we saw before in an act of mercy, we see a foreshadowing of justice here in his act of of judgment and discipline. We see mercy yet. You know, he overturns their tables and he casts them out of the temple, but he does not put them to death. He could have. Indeed, he does not leave the situation as it was in order for it to be a further occasion for the sudden judgment of God. He could have. Instead, he cleanses the temple. He does, as it were, the work of church discipline in order to forestall for the moment the judgment of God. This Yes, it involves pain. Yes, it involves discipline. But there is yet mercy in this action. We have to understand that whenever the Lord provides some sort of discipline, whether in, in the church as a whole or whether in our lives, there is mercy in it. There is mercy in it. This is the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus. Even as he is casting out, even as he is whipping that there's mercy yet to be seen in it. Well, we see that he cries. This is the real Jesus. And we see also that he casts out. But thirdly, I want us to see that he is sovereign in doing these things. Utterly sovereign. You can imagine, of course, that this action of cleansing the temple was not well received by those whom he cast out. Or even by those who approved of the, of the presence of these people. Because he was really condemning them along with him. So yes, there were the money changers. Yes, there were the animal sellers. But there were also the Sadducees and Pharisees who had control. And they were approving of all this. And Jesus was offending them as well. Indeed, we have this statement then that the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Now, he only came to cast out, but they intend to murder the prince of glory. There's no mercy in their actions. There's no sympathetic high priest there. There is only murder in their eyes as they look at their Lord, and they seek an occasion to put him to death. We will not have this man to reign over us. 
And every time that the Lord Jesus acts in accordance with his office as the king of Israel, they hate it. And they hate him even more and more. And the tenants want to kill the heir of the vineyard so that they can have it for themselves, or so they think. But you know, the thing is, it seems to have no effect whatsoever on the, of the Lord. The Lord who is the king, the Lord who is a sovereign, it doesn't slow him down at all. It doesn't stop him. We read in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. It's not that he was ignorant of these things, going about, that they had so carefully concealed their hatred from their faces that he thought that they were his friends. He knows this. It just doesn't stop him. He doesn't go into hiding, but he calmly carries on with his business which is what we should do, by the way. Calmly carries on with his business and implies that the temple remained cleansed at least for a little while. Isn't that amazing? Jesus cleansed it and all the leaders of these people, all the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, just for a moment, even though they were seething in their hatred and loathing of the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't want to have, to have him cleanse it again. So he, lets, he let this situation carry on for a few more days. Well, we have this explanation then in verse 48. They were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. See, they were unable. Do you see the difference between these two things? Here are these ones that in the world's eyes have the authority vested of running that temple, and they're unable to do things. You know why? Because they're not sovereign. They just aren't. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus, who seemed in worldly terms, has no authority whatsoever, walks right into that temple, casts everyone out. And even though all of his enemies want to kill him, they can't do a single thing against him. You know why? Because he's sovereign. That's another thing that's true about the real Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that he cries, not only that he casts out, but he is sovereign in so doing. We're reminded of way back in Luke chapter 4, towards the beginning of this series. Luke 4, 28. So those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. What happens? Do they succeed? You think they would with such a crowd? You think they would surely be able to do that much? But no, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Calmly goes about his business. Why? Because he is sovereign, even in his estate of humiliation, even while he did not have his glory on him. In appearance as a servant, he is sovereign over them. Now, we can't forget what time frame we're in. We're in Luke 9.51 time frame. Luke 9.51, when the time had come for him to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we know it's his time, his time is coming, but even here it's not a moment too soon. The the Lord's time is not plus or minus a year, it's not plus or minus a month, it's not even plus or minus a, a day or even an hour, it is precise and exact, and the Lord calmly carries on with his business because he is sovereign and his time, his final time has not yet come. Now, is this cleansing, this straw that finally breaks the camel's back in terms of the leaders making their final and concerted determination to have Jesus killed? Probably so. 
Yeah, probably so. Between the triumphal entry and between the cleansing of the temple, that is probably the moment when Jesus' fate, as it were, is sealed. But it's not apart from the sovereign determination of God. And even if they wanted to, they could not carry out one moment earlier than as the Lord himself has determined. He said he had power to lay down his life, and he has power to take it up again. Now, if we say that he is sovereign in his cleansing, he can do it. He can cleanse that temple, and they can't stop him no matter what. He carries on his business teaching in that cleansed temple, even though they hate him and want to kill him. I want us to see that's even true of his weeping and lamenting over Jerusalem. Do you know that? Because I don't want us to think that the Lord was suddenly and uncontrollably overcome with emotion. In either case, he wasn't. That may be human emotion. That may be our own weak and sinful emotion. But that is not the situation of the God-man. No, in fact, that weeping, just like everything else that was going to happen, that had happened, was prophesied. Psalm 102.9 says, I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come, for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. This is a messianic psalm in part, and it is prophesied that the Messiah would weep over Jerusalem, and so he did. And let us not forget that this was not in vain. Because although, yes, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and the Lord Jesus knew it, that the Lord would again show favor to Zion. You do understand that the Lord would again show favor to the dust of Zion. And he does that even as he gathers the church together and we, how we pray for the days ahead, both for the calling, yes, of the Gentiles, but of the Jews as well. Because we have every hopeful expectation that the Lord will again show favor in this way. But we want to see that in all these things, this is no accident, no happenstance, nor was Jesus temporarily overcome with emotion, but rather he was sovereign both in his crying and in his casting out. Because he's sovereign God. Now, the straightforward application of of this is to worship this one real Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I tell you the truth. I, I could not, I cannot, I would not bring myself to worship the Jesus of the liberals who is all weakness and vulnerability, an effeminate doormat of a man and no backbone, no justice to be found in him. But on the other hand, I want you to know that I would not and I could not worship the Allah of jihad either. All justice, no sympathetic mercy whatsoever. All, he would be terrible, but not lovely, not attractive, not one that you would wish to spend eternity with. But this real Jesus, this one that we see revealed before us, the real one, the one who both weeps and whips and does it all with perfect sovereignty, the God-man, the image of the living God, he is altogether lovely. 
And he is the most attractive one that can be imagined for those, yes, who have had their eyes opened. And we should worship him. We should worship him. And I would say to you who do not believe that this is the day of your visitation, Jesus, when he contemplates the reality of those who have been visited by the word of God, those who have been visited by an opportunity to put their faith in in himself and to, to have him reign over you, the very thought that you might yet reject him, the very thought then that rather you are sealing your fate for his, the day of judgment, it is a matter of weeping. It is a matter of weeping for me. Because I, I'm not the Lord Jesus, because I'm not as holy as he is, there are no tears in my eyes at the moment. But there have been, and there shall be, a reminder for all those who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the day of visitation. This is the day he comes in peace. And this is your time to put your faith in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And I would ask you, are you willing then, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, are you willing for the Lord to overturn things? You see, here's a, a temple that was called by his name. It was, it, was, it was built at his command. And we know that, in fact, the temple is itself a picture of the church. Well, yes, that's what it is, a type of the church. We know in the new heavens and the new earth there won't really be a temple because the Lord himself is a temple. And we have free access to him. And, and the whole church gathered together is the temple of the living God. But inasmuch as right now the picture we have is of a church, of the church being the temple of God, you understand that the Lord has the right to come and overturn things in this place. You understand then that as he encounters our sin and our uncleanness, as he encounters our impure motives, as he encounters our half-heartedness, that he has the right then to take up his whip of discipline and to indeed cast out those who do not belong in our midst and for others to overturn those things that they should not be doing. Are you willing for this to happen? Let me say that more than likely the days are coming in which there will be an issue of church discipline before us and a certain casting out. And we need to understand that in, this, in these things, it is not the work of any man or men, but rather the work of God, the Lord himself, as he keeps pure his own people, his own church. And we should be willing for these things to happen. As indeed, we should be willing to listen to the word of discipline in our own lives. Inasmuch as the Lord ever grabs our attention, ever speaks to us in in circumstances, may indeed we repent and turn to him with our whole heart, not a half heart, but a whole heart of love to our Savior. Are you willing for this to happen? Let me also ask, do you weep for Zion? 
the Lord did. Do you consider the situation of the church around us and are you satisfied with it? Or do you consider how the living God has been turned out of public life in this land, how his word and his day and his name are universally ignored, dishonored and blasphemed? Do you weep? Do you care? Do you weep for Zion when you look around? Yes, we are thankful for this denomination. Do you understand there's only one church among us, or all 16 of us, that has more than 100 people? Are we satisfied with the condition even of this church? Either in terms of our numbers or even more so in terms of our holiness? I hope not. I hope we look around and we weep for Zion. Brother here from Switzerland. He's probably thinking to himself, we would love to have churches of this size, reformed churches in our our land, because it's even worse in some parts. Do we weep for them? The church in Switzerland, the church in Germany, the church in France. And finally, do we weep for the lost? You know, I, I said that my eyes were dry as I spoke to the unsaved among us. And what a shame that is. You should weep for me, your minister. In the days of the, the plenty, the days of the favor of Zion, the days of blessedness in a church, in the days of awakening and revival, ministers did not preach thus without tears in their eyes. I did today. It's a picture, isn't it, of the situation of the church in this day, in this land. And we do not weep for the lost as we should. May the Lord have mercy on us. May he change our hearts. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how we turn away from every false thing in our hearts. How we pray indeed that you would cast away every idol, every false view of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have harbored, that we have created, that we have looked at, that we have listened to whether physically or mentally. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the true and living God in the image of the living God and the Lord Jesus as he is portrayed to us in the gospel. And Lord, truly, this is no man's image. This is no idea that we ourselves would come up with. We know that all such things are false. But Lord, this, this Lord... He has compassion as well as justice. There is justice and mercy met together in this our Savior, and we bless you for it. We are thankful for such good news. Lord, help us indeed to weep for those who do not receive it. Those who even now on the day of their visitation do not receive this Prince of Glory, do not bow before the Lord on his donkey. We know, Lord, that every knee shall soon enough bow, but... Lord, how we pray would be under circumstances of peace rather than of war and of judgment. Lord, how we bewail even our dry eyes. We do not weep more for the situation of Zion in this land. We ask, Lord God, that you change it. And how we pray for the lost. 
all those who are not among us but ought to be. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring them to repentance. And now we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would visit Zion with joy and blessedness and not judgment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.